The podcast episode you're about to hear is an account of a tragedy that befell a group of businessmen. Had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic Friday afternoon became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre disasters in the annals of Leisure Centre history. The Whitbury Newtown Massacre. So welcome everybody, welcome back to the British Empire podcast. I'm your host, Chris Nichols, as always, and with my co-host, JD Collins, and we're here to chat about all things British. We're diving straight into series three as we talk about this amazing show about nightmare boss Gordon Brittus, who means well, but just brings chaos into the lives of his staff and wife, Helen. How are you doing, John? You all right? I'm very well. Thank you, Chris. Happy New Year to you. It's been ages since we last did this. I'm so looking forward to it. It's entitled The Trial, and it was shown in January 1993, seven weeks before another sitcom had an episode with the title The Trial, One Foot in the Grave. I was going to say that, actually, yeah, because One Foot in the Grave also has the episode The Trial, doesn't it? And that's with the the whole episode just evolving around Richard Wilson with no other characters in it. Yeah. The thing about this episode as well is in 1994, BBC released a collection on video uh, i think it's called laying the foundations and it was five episodes of the British empire so i don't know how they picked them it's not like it's not down as a best of but it is five episodes and the last one they had on that vhs um is the trial so i think it just oh, goes right. to show that it was a popular one even for to be released on video have you watched anything interesting recently jonathan you've in, you've enjoyed over christmas or but over christmas i did watch quite a bit of good stuff um i watched quite a few good documentaries on BBC about like Russell T Davis, uh, French and Saunders and Carol. Right. They were really, really good about their oh, careers. And so that was, uh, I recommend those. Uh, there was a Dawn French did a, a, a show, a one woman show recently called um, Dawn French is a huge twat. All oh, right. Um, that sounds good. <laughs> and it was brilliant. Really funny. Um, one thing we both watched, which we both absolutely loved and highly recommend, is Saltburn on Amazon Prime. So it good, is, isn't it? It's brilliant. I went in knowing very, very little about it, and I was blown away. I loved it so much. I'm hoping to watch it again quite soon because um, it's a very much a dark comedy, and you don't quite know where it's going to go. There's multiple ways it could go, and it just enthralled me from beginning to end. I, I loved oh, it, and I know you did as well. It's brilliant, Saltburn. Absolutely fantastic. I just, I didn't expect it to go in the direction as it did. It completely surprised me. I just, it's one of them where you think it's going in one direction and then it com completely subverts expectations. And it's just so dark and funny. And it's a thriller, it's a mystery, it's a comedy, it's everything. And it's one of those films that kind of lingers with you afterwards. You just think, um, I also watched the new Doctor Who over Christmas. I don't know if you watched Doctor Who at all, John. Yeah, I watched the, that was another one. I watched the three special with David Tennant, which yes. was brilliant. Really great. I was quite surprised how good they were. And the Christmas special uh, with Shuti Gatwa, the new Doctor, I loved as well. I was quite grotesque as well, actually. 
It was, yeah. I, I thought it was really good. It kind of, because after Matt Smith left, I kind of lost interest in Doctor Who. I, I couldn't really get into Peter or Jodie Whittaker, but then it feels like they've reset, they've reset everything with Doctor Who now with the David Tennant came back and it felt like old Doctor Who again, or yeah. like sort of new Who back from 2005, 2006, 2008. It felt like it was back on track again. I thought the guy who played, what was the guy dishing out the, the cards, the, the Joker guy? The oh, toy the toy maker, uh, Neil Patrick Harris. What a great Brilliant. actor. So good. Accent. Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, he's American. He was in a sitcom years ago called How I Met Your Mother. I remember really? him in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, same. He was brilliant in that. And he's been in he's been in so many things and he's such a talented actor. Um, oh. When I heard he was going to be in Doctor Who, I thought, well, that's brilliant. And he was, he totally delivered. Um, yeah, it was, it was just fun telly is how, because yeah. Doctor Who took itself very seriously for too many years and sort of lost its sense of fun for me. Whereas I thought, so far in the, in, in the new Russell T. Davis era, because obviously Russell T. Davis who brought it back originally is back there again. I think he's brought it back um, with, the, with a renewed sense of yes. excitement. And, but, but it doesn't feel like he's treading similar territory. It feels like, oh, it's something of a difference. So I'm, I'm excited to see what it's like when it comes back yeah. in May, apparently. Yeah, I thought they absolutely smashed it. I thought the new Doctor was good as well. And those yeah. weird little oh. alien things where they're, they're singing and trying to eat babies was just bizarre. <laughs> It was the Goblin song. It was, it was, it was, um, that was released just before the episode went out. And I didn't listen to it purposely. Oh, was it? But I thought, I'm glad I didn't because it just gives away everything that goes on. Yeah, that, that is true. I think that sometimes it is the problem, isn't it? Like, I watched, I think it was Step Brothers for the first time with Holly because yeah, she's yes. quite a big fan of that show. Uh, film rather but then i realized when i was watching the film all the funny bits have been put in the trailer so nothing was left to the imagination yeah. so it's like it, ru it ruins it doesn't it a trailer can just spoil things but oh uh, all the time horror films horror trailers are the worst i think for that they really put all the best jump scares and yeah and moments in so no i, I um yeah i try and avoid trailers more these days yeah. though Soulburn, i saw the trailer of and i could it's one it was one of those trailers i couldn't tell you what the hell it was about the film yeah. it was all these different clips i couldn't tell you what it was about couldn't get, I didn't even get a vibe of what kind of film it was, but I still went in to see it and, and was taken by it. Yeah. It didn't, it, it didn't include all the bits, shall we say, again, all the best bits they kept for the film. Absolutely. I think everyone's probably guessing that we really love Saltburn, so please watch it if you get a chance. You know what? It reminded me a bit like Skins. I don't know if you ever watched Skins, the TV show. I remember it, but I never watched it. Yeah. But I can it, see why. It was that like kind of vain. Because I was quite the dark. for that. Yeah. yeah that was quite dark and followed trendy kids and all that kind of stuff so it felt like that but uh how do you um want to hazard a guess john before we go on to this episode what was the most watched thing over christmas on tv on normal telly the, the at the top of the list do you want to have a hazard a guess of this last year <laughs> yeah of 2023 christmas most um, watched. was it was it doctor who it wasn't Doctor Who was third, the third most watched thing this Christmas. That was four point seven million viewers, and then above that was Strictly Come Dancing Christmas Special yep. five point three. But then the top of the list was the King's Christmas broadcast at five point nine million. So there we go. Sounds about right. That sounds about right. Um, uh, I knew that Coronation Street was out of the top ten. It was, and you know. Yeah, you're not surprising as well. If you look at the top 10, it's all BBC. It's like BBC One, BBC One, BBC One. Yeah. Ghosts was number four, Call the Midwife, five. Then it was Michael McIntyre, EastEnders, Toy Story 4. There was only one in the top 10 that was ITV, which was the 1% Club, and all of the nine were BBC One. So there Very we go. Good. Getting oh, the last year Christmas. <laughs> yes, yes. 
Yeah, the license to be his money's worth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a bit of background. Obviously, Series 3 of the British Empire came in, was first broadcast in 1993. And a few, just to give it a bit of context of where we were in the world. So in the, in the United Kingdom in 1993, you had Carlton Television, Meridian and West Country, and the GMTV all beginning broadcasting on January the 1st. And Bill Clinton was 42nd President of the United States on January the 20th. So same month as this um, series kicked off. You also had the World Trade Center in New York City, which was bombed by terrorists on February the 26th. Didn't know about that. Buckingham Palace opened its doors to the public for the first time this in 1993. Princess of Wales, Diana, wanted a divorce from Prince Charles that year as well, John. Yes. Oh gosh, that was pre um pre the panorama interview. So this the, the crown have done that era now, haven't they? Well they've just finished. Oh have they? I've not actually seen the crown, you know. I might have to give it a go. It's yeah, I couldn't get past the first episode, but I can see why I can see its appeal. Yeah, I've heard it's quite sensational now and uh, kind of veering off from reality, but uh, there we go. <laughs> yes. Probably the best the best it's the best thing to do in the world at the moment is veer off from reality as much as possible. Yeah, escape. Escape to the Whitby Newtown Leisure Centre, that's what I say. Um yeah. but yeah, also UK TV highlights, you had the first edition of GMTV in nineteen ninety-three, which was which was presented by Eamon Holmes and Anne Davies. Channel Four became an independent statutory corporation and was allowed to sell its own airtime. And the London News Network, a joint venture between London's two franchise holders, Carlton and LWT, began providing a seven-day news service for ITV viewers in London. And then a couple more bits. You had Scottish television launch, new idents and presentation. The central produced children's series, Tots TV. Yeah, I love Tots TV. <laughs> Made its debut. Love it. Made its debut on ITV and started airing in the US the following day. And finally, the debut of the Sunday morning current affairs series Breakfast with Frost on BBC One, presented by David Frost. You had keeping up appearances. Series 4 and 2.4 Children Series 3 would both air in September 1993. How's your 2.4 Children book going along? Coming along all right, John? Yeah, it is. Thank you. I had to take a break from it while doing the house move, but um, I think now we've recharged the batteries over Christmas. Um, and I've been able to get back to it with, again, another kind of a new sense of purpose, really. Um, and just, yeah, it's um, still a bit of a way off. You know, these things of, you know, editing, rewriting. But yeah. I think it'll be, um, I, don't, I mean, I, w I don't want to give deadline or time, but I think it's it's on track. Definitely on track. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So um, stay tuned, listeners. We'll be updating you about the 2.4 Children book, which will be out at some point in the future. I can't wait till I read it. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, yeah, we've got um, the British Empire Series 3, Episode 1, January the 7th, 8.30pm on a Thursday. That's when it was first um, first aired on BBC One. And the Radio Times entry, we'll start with, as always, was Return of the Comedy Series about the insufferable manager of a leisure centre, written by Richard Fagan and Andrew Norris and starring Chris Barry. British stands accused of murdering several men. The evidence against him seems overwhelming, but could it be that he is, in fact, an unwilling hero. So that's basically the Radio Times entry of the time for this particular episode. And we'll kick straight into it. And we start the episode in the courtroom. So it's quite different, this, isn't it, John? Because normally we'd always start either in the kitchen at Britta's house or in the leisure centre. So the fact that we start in a courtroom is quite surprising and different for the audience, I think, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think what's really clever about it is that this is the third series and that's a great great opening for the third series because with the first two the audience will know the characters know the background of the series but i think yeah 
the idea of it being going out is doesn't seem as jolting now because the audience sort of well well you have to keep the series fresh anyway the notion of starting an episode in a courtroom sounds absolutely correct for Gordon Brittis to have yeah. that experience of because you know as I say they've been they just know what he's like and they know what goes on. It's inevitable. So it was kind of become a a, a, a lawsuit or something happening so that he's in uh, Stan's trial for something eventually. I suppose, yeah, it makes sense really because obviously there's all these disasters and fires that happen in the leisure centre. He's got to sort of be held to account at some point. So I think it, it makes it more realistic, doesn't it, that he's actually going to court for, you actually see the back end of, a disaster, not just the disaster happening at the leisure centre. You see the consequences afterwards of him actually standing trial. So I think it makes it a bit more realistic because you can have all these things happen at the centre, but seeing him being in trouble with the law, I think is perhaps what was needed. And I think it helps make it more real. Absolutely. And I do like the non-linear structure of going back about what happened. I do like the yeah. transition between the scenes in the courtroom to the moments in the leisure centre which yeah. sort of show the, the the contrast and the double sides of what was going on. You know, it, it really, it's it's always fun when sitcoms play with the format a little bit and it's yeah. not just linear and, and you see a day in the life of the leisure centre. It's just always more interesting and, and unexpected, but it's a show that we've come to know at this point you can expect the unexpected. Yeah, and I love that it opens, just opens with the uh, Brits on trial in a courtroom, the staff are in there, the, the jury, prosecutor, everybody's there in this full courtroom, and he says, Gordon Wellesley Brittus, you are charged that you did on the 13th of November 1992, the murder of Julio Escobedo, Eduardo Ramirez, Juan Mendoza, Robert Pechard, Ian Trenum, also known as Big Gary, and Raymond Watts. But you did have in your possession controlled drugs of Class A, namely heroin and amph amphetamines, contrary to the Misuse of Drugs Act of 1971, and that you caused grievous bodily harm to Alice Whiteley, Grace Beatty, Agnes Swinton, and Doreen Levine Smith, all of the Whitby Newtown Sunshine Retirement Home, and obviously, Brutus is pleading not guilty to all this. Now, what I noticed for the first time, because I've seen this quite a few times, John, but they said the charged, so the actual events taking place actually happened on the 13th of November 1992. Mm. So that surprised me, because obviously it's a 93 episode, and I always presume the episodes are always set in the same year as they broadcast. But obviously, I guess when they wrote it, they didn't perhaps know when it was going out. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 they probably, because as you say, they probably would have filmed it around the autumn of 92 probably knowing it might go in winter, but, you know, things can change. So, yeah, that probably does make sense in terms of the, the timeline. I love at the beginning of this when they they list everything that he's being um, charged with. And yeah. I just, and it's the fact that we then go later on seeing all these things happen. And what's really clever is you just, in your mind, you, you picture everything that's happened without really, I mean, it's all out of context here, really. You don't yeah. really know what the injuries are and stuff fully, but you, in your mind, catastrophize the whole event. And then what's really good is that what follows actually lives up to it because it sounds all very dramatic and what happens is very dramatic. And, and obviously, Britta's pleas not guilty. And then we have the prosecutor played by Terence Hardiman as well, which, which I know him for the Demon Headmaster. I don't know if you ever saw the Demon yeah. Headmaster, John. I remember it. my brother watched it and he had a book 
a novelization of it and he's the, the demon headmaster on the front cover so i i do know of the actor and know the character so that was really cool to see him in this yeah it was great he's, he's just i think he's known for that kind of these sinister kind of roles that he just plays absolutely perfectly and he's so good in this because he is like terrifying isn't he <laughs> oh he is i mean he plays it's a typical prosecutor role. i mean i i mean Going to court is one of my biggest fears. Not that I know what I'd actually ever ever yeah. be accused of to go to to court, but honestly, whenever you see trials and stuff and on telly and prosecutors, they they've got to be so ruthless. And he has got a very sinister look about him. He's he's very yeah. foreboding. He's the kind of character who you wouldn't lie to him at all no. because he would be able to stare at, stare the truth out of you. <laughs> Look into my eyes, Mr. Brutus. Yeah, is it is too far in a Latin? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was. It's quite a famous actor, isn't it? I think he's been in quite a, um, a fair bit, and he did a lot of voiceover work as well. He was born in, in April sixth, nineteen thirty-seven, in London, and he, he only died last year, actually, April eighteenth, twenty twenty-three. So, yeah, yeah I, remember, I think I remember it being on the news him dying. It was quite sad. So obviously, I always remember him for for Brutus, the British Empire prosecutor role that he plays here but like i said the demon headmaster as well but uh yeah they brought the demon headmaster back actually which i kind of watched part of the new one but i don't know sometimes i think when it hasn't got that nostalgia you kind of get attached to the the original series yeah, when they remake something it's never yeah. quite the same is it oh, usually no, def definitely anymore. not no especially if it's not the same people yeah it's like if, if they remade britus with somebody else playing Gordon Brittus, you know, it just wouldn't be the same. It has to be Chris Barry, just like, you know, Patricia Routledge has to play, play Hyacinth Bucket. It just, yeah. it's not, it's not the same, is it? If you kind of just completely replace the cast. No, def no definitely not. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's got to be uh, as you remember it, really, or close yeah. enough. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, he's just so sinister in this. Uh, Terence Hardy Murney just says, members of the jury, the main facts of the case are not in dispute. On the day in question, the police arrived at Whitbreed Newtown Leisure Centre to find the lifeless bodies of seven men laying outside the squash courts. I just love that. I love that bit. I just think it's just, it's just so funny and crazy, isn't it? Just these, these bodies lying outside the squash courts. It's just so dark. It's so British Empire, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And one of whom had been beheaded by the accused. And, and it just builds up these, this yeah. mental image in your mind. You think, what the hell happened? And the next bit is the next bit is really good. His delivery because he says to understand the circumstances behind these extraordinary events, I must take you back to Whitbury Newtown Leisure Centre on what at first seemed to be a normal autumn day, a Friday, Friday the thirteenth. I just love the way he says it. <laughs> yeah, very sinister, and he, it's almost like he's acting to the jury, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, my impressions can't do them justice. It's fantastic. I presume, listeners, you've seen this episode, but if not. If it slipped the net, go and watch it because it is absolutely hilarious. But uh, there we go. And then we cut to the Leisure Centre reception, don't we, where Britta's Carol and Colin are. And Carol's having these visions. You know, Britta's on the phone with it stuck to his head. <laughs> Very 90s phone, isn't it, John? <laughs> oh, it's like a brick. It really is. You know, when people say, oh, 90s phones are like bricks, when you yeah. see them, they really were huge. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in 2023, everyone's glued to the phones, but Brits is literally glued to his phone in this episode. So there we go. <laughs> it's been a problem. Since, been a problem since the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I think it, as soon as mobile phones were invented, I think socialising and etiquette has just gone out the window, really. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, try, I try and put mine away now, you know, I try and either put it on Do Not Disturb or I'll, I'll try and avoid posting too much on Facebook. I don't even go on Instagram now because, you know, I, I just ended up using it too much. It got it got to the point with me where I was just kind of putting pictures of my dinner 
on Instagram every day. And I just thought, this is insanity. I've got to stop. You know, and it wasn't even a nice dinner. It could just be sausage and mash. But I'd share that with the whole world. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? So I've stopped doing that now. <laughs> Imagine going British on Instagram. Yeah, woo, he'd just be putting up all his uh, rules and regulations, won't he? All, all the notice boards and, and stuff like that. Don't chew gum, don't wear rubber sole shoes and stuff. He'd just be putting them up on Instagram, wouldn't he? <laughs> oh, he'd be, he'd be insufferable. I do like with Carol when she talks about her visions and she's like, oh, no more blood, hear it, not please. You know, she hear not in here, please. You know, she's kind of visualising some catastrophe at the centre and it makes you then think, oh, is, is this, does Carol have supernatural powers? Does she have? at all yeah it, it's great this it's great fun though, what they do with carol in this episode because throughout it she's getting these visions and the, she's dropping these hints of something ominous to come and it's kind of a great bit of foreshadowing that just makes adds to the drama and the suspense i think of the episode yeah absolutely but i think it just highlights once again just how she's uh just often in her own in her own mind all the time and uh, she's always so edgy and nervous and you know all her fears often have proven right aren't they Definitely, yeah. And obviously we learn here that somebody is has got a maniac with a tube of superglue and they keep basically gluing stuff that they know Mr. Brutus will pick up. And uh, at the moment he's picked up a phone and it's superglued to his face. So uh, I, I did, I was watching this earlier, this episode, and I was just looking really, really closely to see if I could see any Velcro or anything just to work out how they did it. And it were flawless, flawless prop designs. Yeah, I, I think what's really clever about this is also Chris Barry's delivery. So you've yeah. got um carol sort of saying i saw danger terrible danger from a distant land and then colin's like oh, i think she's warning of some disaster mr Britt and then uh, Britt is holding the phone still sort of looking very confident very suave but i told her we don't need to look for distant lands to find any disaster around here colin and then literally puts it down and it's just the way he he <laughs> tilts his head and has a real vacant expression with this phone hanging off his ear it's just a really great visual humor and then he's like, I thought you're supposed to be sewing the logs. Um, and then it, it, he's just totally oblivious to it. I mean, he plays it so well, Chris Barry, in that moment. Yeah, it is. there's a lot of great visual gags in British, and particularly this episode, it's visually very, very strong and quite striking, I think, with a lot of the, the props and stuff. And it's just, yeah, really well done, isn't it? And then Laura comes over and says, oh, they're back again, Mr. Bridges. The Bolivians. They're in the changing rooms. I still don't like the look of them. Because to the courtroom, and then you've got the prosecutor there, with Laura then in the witness box. And he's like, why didn't you like the look of them, Miss Lansing? And she was like, it's hard to say, little things. They book squash courts and never actually play. And they'd bring bags of kit with them, but never get changed. I remember once hearing one of them say, it's perfect, isn't it? Nobody ever comes here. I love that line. It just, yes. it, it always cracks me up that line. I love it. Well, Britta's looks really confused when she says that. Um, yeah. Um, and it's meant to be Julius St. Julius St. John's birthday today, is that right? It is, yes. We are recording this on Julius St. John's birthday, so happy birthday, Julia. Yes, 4th of January 2024. So if you're listening to this retrospectively, welcome. But uh, Julia, if you're out there, if you're listening to our podcast, happy birthday. <laughs> One of the things, actually, um, Julia said in the past in interviews I've heard, she said that by about Series 3 onwards, the audience knew the characters. Yes. And I think she said that there was so much warmth from the audience at that point, because by then, you know, they were so well grounded in people understood what Britus was, Colin was, Laura was. And I think, yeah, she just kind of said how there's so much warmth from the audience. And I think that's why, like you say, John, they can sort of play with the format a bit here, and have them start not in the, not in the ledger centre, but in the 
courtroom. It just shows confidence in the characters now, confidence in the writing that they know the audience know these characters enough to take them out of the, the usual habitat. There's one particular um, interaction between one of the staff members and the prosecutor later on that I think shows how, as you say, with the audience knowing the characters and knowing how each of the characters would naturally behave in a courtroom setting with British on trial to a prosecutor. Um, and I think it, you can hear some points in, in certain moments where the audience laugh in a certain way because yeah. they know something that the prosecutor won't know or yeah. something in the character's personalities. It's really well done. And, and Laura, especially in this moment, is very um, methodical, very sensible, very typical law in control yeah it's interesting that isn't it because when i was watching that i noticed that there's a lot that they give to the audience that they don't give to the characters yeah. like infant infant from an information perspective plot perspective yeah. and i've when i think about britus now more generally i think that is a lot of the case where you do get shots of a fire starting but no character there to see the fire starting other than the audience the audience always yeah. know both sides of the coin i know that's probably standard writing but it's quite an interesting I think observation of the actual show because not, not not every sitcom really does it like that and i think it is interesting to to have that well most comedy sitcoms directly very linear linear you know it's all yeah. you know it's, it's all in a very very smooth order but i like shows like Chris that just play with the format or, or play with audience knowledge and expectation it just is always exciting and uh well thought out plots yeah, definitely. And then obviously we cut to the changing rooms. Britus is doing his toilet inspection with Gavin and he finds a key to a locker behind one of the toilets. I think he says, yes, pine freshener, possibly a bit strong. And <laughs> he opens the locker one, two, four, and he finds a black briefcase in there. Doesn't he, Gavin? Uh, doesn't, doesn't he, Gavin? Doesn't he, John? <laughs> John. Yes, it's, um, it's always very suspicious. I mean, in this day and age, you know, anyone leaving a, a bag or anything in a random public place is always a big concern it's really it's a bit like a video game this in a weird way the fact that he's yeah. having to find objects in random places and it takes it through, mean? um through the different through the story yeah so basically they find this random key behind a toilet they open the locker that it's for and they find a black briefcase in it and then he wants Gavin to take it up to his office to you know, for safekeeping or whatever and then he just says the person claiming it only needs to provide detailed knowledge of its contents complete the necessary paperwork and pay the administration costs and their property will be returned so there we go it's not just simple with britters where you can just give it back to somebody they've got to pay admin fees and fill out the forms of course of course <laughs> yeah. what could be simpler as Britta says i mean i just love that he just thinks that the smallest what he thinks is a very small request is actually massive yeah definitely and then we get gavin on trial which we're back into the on into the witness box and he explained mr britters just found the key behind the toilets and what i love is um how the demon headmaster well the prosecutor just says just found it there yes of course just not convinced but the way he delivers it is really really funny that always makes me giggle oh yeah he does it tongue-in-cheek i mean i can imagine him being very good you know as a children's tv villain and he kind of incorporate. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he was doing the Demon Master at this point, but you can definitely yeah. tell if the casting agents or directors for that show watch this episode. You can see why he'd make a good villain because here he's playing it very seriously, very deadpan. Um, but and it's it could very easy to be a villainist. It's funny because I was reading about him as well, doing the research for this episode. He's meant to be like the nicest, gentlest person in real life, but yeah, on screen he's the most sinister person. Yeah. Just shows to show sometimes he's probably um, projecting any dark inner darkness in his yeah. world. 
I guess it's better that way than, than the other way around, isn't it? If you're nice on the screen and horrible off screen, because sometimes they do say never meet your heroes because they're not always as nice as you expect them to be in real life. There you go. No, I have heard that. Yeah. Although I have met Chris Barry and he was absolutely lovely. So he called me a good lad. So I'll take that compliment. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that's very nice. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, when Gavin's on trail and... He asked if Gavin knew what was inside the case that he found. And Gavin says, I love how casual Gavin is. He just said, oh, yes, I just had a quick look. Um, and he just says politely, there was £650,000 in £10 notes. I just love how he says it so <laughs> blasé and just casually. Oh, yeah, there were just £650,000 in £10 notes inside the case. I love the, and I love how the jury all mutter amongst each other as well. That just made, I don't know why that made me laugh. They're all just like, I just love it because every single step here is is going to more and more. It's just going the complete opposite direction to how Britus needs it to go. It's just making him look more and more guilty, more and more suspect. And you just, what's clever about this episode is you think, how the hell is he going to get out of this? You know, the yeah. more it goes on, it's like, how can he possibly get out of, get out of this? And that's what's so clever uh, about it as well. Oh yeah, definitely. It's um, it just all all stacked again. All the odds are stacked against him. Yeah. And then back in the changing rooms, we have the first meeting of um, Eddie, one of the one of the gangsters, and and he's there putting in another case in the locker and hiding yet another key. And he's obviously played by Perry Fenwick, which I don't know if you're familiar with EastEnders, John, but when I see him, I just think Billy Mitchell from EastEnders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't watch EastEnders, but it's one of those like horror, you know, characters and stuff. So it's yeah. just interesting. It just goes to show like a lot of these actors who go on to have big time roles later on always a kind of pop up in loads of classic series that they were that were on before they were in a long-running show or, or famous for something particular so yeah really cool to see him in this and playing quite a sinister character as well but and uh, obviously with and, now, and obviously carol parkinson joins in once again and um, reunited in eastenders as they're uh, i think he's still in eastenders yes, of course. So the he's end is back, there, on, yeah. back on the same show together <laughs> yeah she's the um queen vic landlady isn't she it gives me a shock you know every time i hear a sp i mean i don't watch eastenders but the clips i've seen yeah because you're so used to playing carol and you see harriet thorpe playing somebody so different with like a different accent it's like whoa this isn't carol <laughs> definitely they, they all seem to wear these awful colored tracksuits, don't they in a yeah, 90s, they 90s aerobics it's always the same like weird colored blocky you know what I mean? Clothes. Yeah. It looks it looks quite similar to the stuff that Richard Bucket wore on the QE2 episode. I was just thinking the same thing. Team of appearances, really yeah. yeah. They must have one track so they just share around each sitcom. Maybe. I think they do have a lot of props that are very similar, apparently. They used to have the comedy departments have the same props and they would put them between shows like sofas and videos and stuff. So it probably is very similar. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I definitely saw that the one foot in the grave, one of the sofas used for Victor Meldrew is used as Hyacinth Buckets, one of her... Yeah. I think sofas in the earlier episodes and you, you do see like certain jokes as well being swapped over and things like that don't you particularly with one foot and 2.4 children yes you see the kind yes. of swapping jokes over and things like that and similarities between the two so it is it is interesting the kind of the crossovers and stuff like that and what i noticed over christmas i noticed that how many comedy christmas specials are set on boats because you've got birds of a feather 2.4 yeah. children keep appearances there's so many on boats, it's yeah. a good thing for, for a sitcom, I think. But uh, yeah, love it. I uh, I digress anyway. But yeah, so <laughs> British Collars, obviously, Billy from EastEnders, who is Eddie in this episode. <laughs> and, uh, he seems to have a fixation, British, with this character, doesn't he? He seems to think that Eddie is 
part of this squash tournament and yeah. he's holding it up because he's not playing or something like that, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he takes to Eddie quite quickly. I mean, we sort of learn it as the episode goes on. But it's really just one of those moments where Gorn just fixates on a person and then just basically irritates them <laughs> for all his worth. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting one, this, because obviously I, d I always love seeing Gordon Brittus interacting with people who are members of the public. You know, I think it's great when they bring characters in who are either guest speakers or customers. And I think it's interesting here because, again, this is something quite different that they're doing because he's actually interacting with a villain here, mm. somebody who's like a criminal as opposed to just a customer. So that gives yeah. it a different extra sort of angle, I think, which is quite interesting. In this time, they swapped it around. Tim's now cleaning the toilets and it's another toilet inspection and he also finds a key to another locker which i think he says good lord you think they're breeding in there as they find another another briefcase tim's on trial we're back onto the witness box and the prosecutor the prosecutor now questions tim who was advised that the police he was basically advised the police that britta's had his arm around eddie and i love this bit because tim says um so the, prosecu the prosecutor's saying how suspicious that looks that britta's had his arm around eddie because it must suggest they know each other. But then Tim says they could have just really liked each other. It happens sometimes. And there's a yeah. big cheesy grin. And then Britta yeah. doesn't look impressed because he's implying, obviously, that he's having a, a gay relationship with him. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that bit. It's quite a, a bit going back to what I said before in terms of the audience will laugh because obviously they know about Tim and Gavin. And then it kind of goes over the head of the prosecutor and everything. Um, just a funny moment. But again, you only have to know the characters for, for a line like that to land. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's always that. It's always interesting how kind of homosexuality is used in the British Empire because we're always laughing with Tim and Gavin at the situation of Britta's not having a clue, or mm. you know, it's, it's always clever the way they kind of use that. I think in Britta's office as the case, and we've got more superglue fun in the office. He's getting his hands stuck to, I think, a drawer, and then it's the intercom, isn't it? And Julie's not helping at all. She's I'm busy. She's busy. She's not helping. And it's just yeah. more fun, great slapstick, more great visual gags, I think. Oh, hundred percent. And it, it just again, it kind of builds up, builds up for to the crescendo that's coming. Yeah, definitely. And then we cut to Carol and Helen in reception. And she's having more visions, Carol. So there was blood, Mrs. Britters, dripping down the walls. And it's all this kind of, again, it's more foreshadowing of what's to come. And I, I like it because the audience are like, you know, it's, if you watch this for the first time, I think, oh, it's it's suspense building this, isn't it? It's quite, it's clever. It's not just, I think that's what I love about Britters. You always got a sense of suspense and drama of, gosh, what's going to happen sort of thing. You do. And I also love Helen. She comes in with such a dry response to everything. Carol's like, I've so just had another one of my visions. And then Helen like, oh dear. And then she explains all that, you know, um, you know, there were dead bodies, dead bodies everywhere. And he goes, yeah, she has howling as was my husband. One of them was he? <laughs> yeah. That was just a, it was just a thought really funny. We've got a British arriving where this thing stuck to his hands and <laughs> it's just, hello, my darling. And then there's a chainsaw on the floor and Carol confirms it's Collins. The bit with Colin, I just love because <laughs> he comes out of the, the staff room and says, I'm sorry, Mr. Britters. I was just shringing my ears. And then oh, I love that. He just, when he has this giant syringe oh, <laughs> against I, his ear, it's just, it's just like, what on earth? Oh, How much wax he got in there? 
And then I love what he says. He said, I felt a slight irritation and it's just as well that I noticed as I appear to have flushed out a couple of wood lice. Oh, love it. It's disgusting, isn't it? It's horrible, isn't it? But I think what's good about it, again, you know that Colin has got, you know, he's not very hygienic and stuff, but they, you know, at this point they could really go very over the top with it, but they yeah. still restrain it enough so that it's within the realm of believability, which I quite enjoy. So he's left this chainsaw that he's meant to be using to be cutting the wood down in reception. And then Brittis is like, you leave an unsupervised chainsaw on the, in a public area. Suppose some small child came in here, mistook it for part of his Fisher Price woodworking set and ran off to Tumble Tarts to show his friends. You have a that, on your hands. So 90s. That is so 90s. I love that. Really, really great line, that. Really, really funny. Yeah. The Fisher, Fisher Price woodworking set. <laughs> and then obviously Colin says, I never thought of that, Mr. Brittas. And then he says, take it to my office, please, where I can make sure it's locked locked away safely. The hilarious bit when Helen is in Brittis' office and there's the pill mix up because obviously the case full of drugs, etc., has been taken to Brittis' office. And that's where Helen thinks her pills are, which she's coming to collect from Brittis. And she's like, are you sure they're all mine, Gordon? And she's on the phone to him. <laughs> it's a reception. Yeah, he's like, yes, the doctor said take one whenever you feel you need to. <laughs> if you run out, he'll give you more in a couple of weeks. You know, she's so excited, isn't she, that she can... Uh take as many as she wants um, she's not realizing it's a class a drug <laughs> and then obviously helen's on trial then and then we cut to her in a rather lovely fur coat in the witness box which we learn is from uncle simon now i think this is the last time we hear of from uncle simon in the entire series i don't mm. think i remember him being mentioned after this because as we spoke before they do try and phase out helen's affairs i mean she has a couple in series five but generally speaking after this it's not really fair heavy is it with helen brittis no i think they they do make her a bit more loyal to gordon as the series progresses yeah especially in six and seven where i think she gets more manic and more dependent on him as well so uh, definitely it's something that they, they phase out but yeah i just i love how she's being prosecuted the prosecutor's questioning her about these pills and she thought oh, i thought they were mine i thought the doctor had finally got it right they never really worked <laughs> Obviously, he starts questioning Helen because she arrived in a Mercedes to court and she's wearing a lovely fur coat. And he asks if um, Gordon Brittis is a wealthy man. And he ju she just says rather dryly, he goes, he does get a bonus in his salary for every hundred people through the door. And then the prosecutor says, was there a bonus last year? I don't think there was one last year. It's one of them as well where it takes good acting to kind of get that balance right between she's obviously having an affairs, but you still sympathise with her and you still laugh with her and you still want to side with her. It's quite a complex sort of balancing act you've got to get with a character. And I think she's just vulnerable enough, vulnerable enough to get away with seeing Uncle Simon and stuff at this point. I think I can see why they phase that out, but I think she just gets away with it. Yeah, I agree. And I have to say, I, I mean, you know, I don't like to sort of always bring up this idea of what they can and can't, they could do then and they couldn't do now but I definitely don't think they could write Helen quite like she is in the series now no. I think yeah. understandably the discussion about mental health and stuff is is a lot more prevalent now but I think you could find the humor in it um, and have that balance of being funny but sensitive but I think now any slight moment of humor in relation to that would would be off straight away yeah i think as well like if yeah it's, it's a funny one isn't it because i think it's like with carol and the babies you kind of think well, would they get away with that now the babies yeah. in drawers because obviously it is 
ludicrous babies in drawers and it's funny but you think oh would people complain in 2023 or not but uh, as we know as we know from that and, and you know people complained at the time with the baby scenario yeah. in drawers but uh, so even back then people complained but yeah it is interesting how yeah i think the approach to mental health we're so much more open about mental health these days i think we've still got a long way to go but there's a lot more support for people and things like that so i think it would probably be portrayed quite differently if they like you say if they wrote helen britters today I love what this bit how she says just before it cuts back to Legend Centre she goes oh just if you finish with the pills gotta have them back <laughs> and then we obviously flip back to the Legend Centre and it's now Julie's turn so Julie's on trial and we hear her getting interviewed by the prosecutor whilst we're showing these shots of the Legend Centre corridors Eddie's on the phone and he's basically talking to his gangster mates and because obviously these cases are going missing he thinks they're pulling a fast one the the dealers and the drug dealers and stuff they're trying to scam them out of the money and whatnot so uh, that's getting set up and which what the audience see but Julie taps him on the shoulder and asks Eddie to go to Brutus's office to get a cup because he somehow managed to win the squash tournament, hasn't he, John? <laughs> yeah, I, I just uh, yeah, it's um, it's just funny because he's trying to do his uh, sort of criminal activities and he's just being pulled into the the madness of the leisure centre and Mister Brutus's weird um, philosophy on on life. It's really clever. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, Brutus is like obviously for somehow has got to the conclusion that Eddie has won the squash tournament. I don't know how he's got to that conclusion, do you? <laughs> no, no I, I, I tried to work that out. I couldn't at all. But yeah, he somehow made it in his head that <laughs> this guy, this criminal has never played squash in his life, has, has won the squash tournament and he's won a cup. And I think this is kind of quite essential for the plot later on because all of a sudden this guy who's been a drug dealer involved in petty crime has suddenly found a bit of worth i think yeah. and i think with this discussion with gordon brittis in the office this is ultimately you know the the the, the point which the turning point which what saves him later on because you've got a scenario where for once brittis is talking to somebody and his talking is actually done good yeah absolutely i like this sort of the irony in what Bruce says you know he says oh you know it's all very easy for us with our cozy middle class lives edward but we have to remember that they're not all the kids out there happy advantages of you and me and i love how eddie's like a as if probably he doesn't probably have advantages compared to gordon yeah but then he Gordon keeps going saying no oh, if we could bruce bring them in here and we're champions like you to attract them i know we could can you imagine what miracles might happen the smile on the face of a child when it takes those first hesitant strokes across the pool, the look on someone's face when they win a trophy for the first time and realise that, that life's a little bit more than hanging around street corners, getting involved in drugs and petty crime. And I like how Eddie sort of like moves and you know shifts in his chair a little bit, looking a bit uncomfortable yeah. because he sort of, you know, he's, he's actually is involved in drugs and petty crime. And then obviously you've got Britus in reception. So he goes down to reception and he's speaking to one of these men in white suits, which Carol's been having the visions for, which is interesting. And obviously he's talking in a, a foreign accent to British and he's saying, uh, friends, we're meeting in the squashy court. And British is like, right. And he's trying to understand them, but you can see it's completely going over his head into. Yeah. And then Carol's dead really nervous. You know, she they says, these are the men she saw in the vision with the dead bodies. Uh, and yeah. then he looks over and then looks up at them and goes, they look perfectly healthy to me, just getting the tickets, not realising that they're probably not dead yet. You know, it's just like, oh, God. Yeah, so British arrives with the with the men in the squash courts. So outside the squash courts, you've got more men in white suits and British brings the two from reception to meet these guys. And we do see in the distance 
some guys in darker suits messing yeah. about with with, yes, with the guns. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And then Britters arrives saying, "Ah, Mister Mendoza, I brought along two of your friends. Now they say they are only going to watch, but if they are tempted to play, just let me know, and I'll organise some rackets. All right. Well, enjoy your game, gentlemen, and watch out for that back wall. They come off it like bullets sometimes." <laughs> I love that. He's just almost like giving them permission and, and sort of he's just not completely he's completely I love that line about bullets because he's completely oblivious. Like further down the corridor, you've got these guys who are literally just getting the guns out because at this point they think there's no cases. Brits has taken them away. These other drug dealers, they're they're conning us out of our money, out of our cash and stuff. So it's time for a shootout, basically. And Brits is completely unaware that they're all getting the guns out in this uh, in the corridors where the squash courts are. Yeah, I love that. It's it, again. It's just it's another thing I love in comedy, which you may, you don't care as much now. It's the sort of irony of lines or foreshadowing, or you know, interest or enjoy all that. I just love Brits in this episode because he's so oblivious to absolutely everything, isn't he? Yeah. You know, no matter what's going on, he just can't see the danger that's under his nose, and that's just fatal always for Whitbury Leisure Centre. And obviously, he's now going down the stairs. These guys are on the top floor. You've got two groups of gangsters on the top floor, which he thinks are all businessmen in shirts and ties, nothing to worry about. But little does he realise they're getting their guns out and not their arm guns, their shooty guns. So it's very, very bad. And he goes down the stairs to meet Laura, who's got the lost property box. But you can't see a problem. And I think we see in this conversation with Laura, this sort of the snobbishness of British, because he says, she says, can you really not see anything wrong about the men, about the visions? And he's like, not at all. You know, these are businessmen in shirts and ties, no scruffy T-shirts or trainers. So I think you get that snobbery in this clip, don't you, with with Laura? Yeah, definitely. I think Laura, what's really interesting with Laura in this scene is she's she's bringing back, the you know, what Carol said, saying, you know, those, Carol said, those are the men. You sure you're not worried? And, you know, even yeah. though Laura is the voice of reason and the sort of sensible one, I think the fact that she still listens to Carol and is still taking seriously what she says and showing concern for potential safety within the centre. Yeah, Gordon, again, is not only oblivious, but as you say, really snobby and yeah. totally oblivious to the fact that, that um, you know, he says, sounds like a moped with a badly adjusted carburetor. <laughs> when the noise that goes from upstairs, he's just so stupid. Yeah, like, because Laura's hearing this, these, what appears to be gunshots, and, and she's like, what's that? But obviously he thinks it's just Helen going home on the moped. So it's just completely oblivious to the danger that's literally right above his head. And she basically, he basically, he basically tells Laura not to worry, you know, don't worry about the men. The noises are probably just Helen on the moped. Go and get a coffee and a flapjack. And oh, she has a lost property box. <laughs> she's, and he squeezes her cheek, doesn't he? Yeah. Really patronising. She goes off and he's left with the lost property box, which he, he then puts be on the on the table behind him at the bottom yeah. of the stairs. And then we get another interesting bit. I mean, as we've said before, the audience get to see a lot more than the characters in this episode. Yeah. And the audience see from above this man falling into the railings and then dropping who's being shot from above. And then the gun falls down behind Britus into the lost property box. And he's just saying, how oh, women worry too much whilst the gun just falls behind him into a box. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I mean, again, so well constructed these plots. I mean, Fagan and Norris just are right. These really outlandish farces that are yeah. so intricate and clever and just just Absolutely. so possibly put together. Brilliant. And the next bit is really gory when her, one of the men appears at the front desk with like blood on his hands. I mean, it's quite a lot of, I mean, it's pretty gruesome, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. I mean, for half past eight in a family sitcom, you've got a guy on the floor who's been shot and going, Argh! with all blood on his hands, and uh, Carol's there. Mr. Britters, did you see what book she was reading as well, John? Yes, she was reading Just How Sane Are You by Dr. M.I. Stevens. That's it. I did try to Google this book. I couldn't find it online, but uh, yeah, I did. I did try to see if this was a real book or not. I wasn't sure if it was. I mean, I did. I did find a doctor online, but I wasn't too sure if it was the same person. But uh, yeah. unless, unless it's some kind of clever bit of trickery there, Stevens could be a reference to the to the director. I don't know, Mike Stevens. It could well be. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like the fact that it is um, a a fake um, book, a pop. Yeah, it's kind of funny this because obviously by now Britis is back in his office with the lost property box, which has the gun in it. And Carol calls up to the office and he's basically on the other end. We're in Gordon Britis's office and he's saying, you've seen another body, have you, Carol? Jolly good. What I suggest you do is make yourself a cup of warm milk and soon all the bodies will have gone away. <laughs> oh, I know. Just so patronising as always. And I love how we see Britis's inner child as well come out, don't we now? Because he finds the gun in the lost property and he's just amazed by it. Yeah. And he starts playing with it like, get down, punk, get down. <laughs> come on, punk, make my day a bit like a day, Harry there, which I like. Yeah. And then the, the best bit, obviously, is when Linda opens the office door and then he shoots it by mistake and it hits perfectly the forehead on a poster of an athlete. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I mean, you just goes to show he's actually deep down quite a good assassin, I think. Yeah, absolutely. He could have used those skills in series one, episode six, to be honest. He would have um, got him well, that gun. It <laughs> would have, yeah. There we go. And obviously Linda's on trial now in the witness box, and the prosecutor says how the gun's bullets match those in the three of the dead men. And Linda advises Britus said he found the gun in lost property. The prosecutor says... Miss Lansing said she gave the lost property box to Gordon Britus and said there was no gun in the box 10 minutes earlier. So it's just, I love this because it's just so clever because everything is linking together. Everything's stacking against Gordon Britus, but it's all kind of the way Fagan and Norris have written this. I just think it's really, really clever how Laura Lee's been in the box for the gun falls in the box. You've got, it's just all interlinking, isn't it? Quite neatly and slotting together like a nice little neat sort of thriller oh yeah again it's another where so which plays with genre not just is it a sitcom you've got an element of say thriller and gangster and and I, and yeah again i love sitcoms that do that that play with genre but also with the filming style as well and the shots are just so interesting and less like a kind of boring easy to make studio sitcom yeah, definitely. And it's like what Chris Barry said, you know, this there was never that many jokes in British Empire. It's a proper sitcom. It's purely situation. And I think this episode demonstrates that quite well because it is it's it's driven by the plot and the situations and the and the, the misunderstandings and the mishaps that are going on within those plots, which I just think is it's just really, really funny. It cuts the Brits in his office and he's finally sorting out all the lost property. So all these cases of, you know, drugs and weapons and money. And I just love this line. He just says, one gun, white powder, £650,000. Right. Lost property forms. <laughs> I mean, I mean, God, it, it, little does it, it just, it's so typical of Gordon's brain. You know, yeah. when, when you've got all that, I mean, alarm bells would be ringing straight away. It'd be blatantly obvious what's going on. But no, it's typical Gordon. He thinks it's just something that people have lost. So it's property forms, so, you know, business is normal. Sort of little, his little pedantic way of doing things continues. It's just very, very well written. 
yeah, it's brilliant. And then this is just the whole, the final act in this episode is just fantastic. And this is just the bit I absolutely love as well yeah. because he, the chainsaw from earlier was sent up to his office for safekeeping and it was placed in his office on top of the lost property form. So he's there trying to move the chainsaw to get to the lost property forms. And of course, the person with this tube of super glue has put it all over the chainsaw. So now he's got a chainsaw stuck to his hands. <laughs> I love that, and I love how he uses the, the the blade of the chainsaw to open the to to to, to move the telephone. Yeah, um, it becomes like Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, in, and the way he moves, even even actually his suit. I've just realised. Um, so listeners, we, me and Chris went to a horror convention in November in Manchester. Yes, we did. The love of horror, and we both went in costume. I went as Ghostface from the Scream films, and Chris went as. Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, specifically that one because the look of Leatherface is quite different. His mask is different and he also wears almost like a, a tuxedo, which I've just realised Chris looks exactly, he's very similar to the one that Mr. Britis was wearing in this episode. Exactly. And I, I couldn't help but think because I, I've grown up with the British Empire and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So watching this again, I always think of both. And yeah, yeah. it was, we had a great, we had a great laugh, didn't we, John, at the, at the horror convention? The love oh, of yes, so much fun. It would just, it was absolutely brilliant. Love of horror. And in Manchester, I was dressed as Leatherface, howling and shouting, running around, having fights with Michael Myers. John was yeah. running around his ghost face. It was just, yeah, it was, it was a great laugh, wasn't it? It was. Oh, we had such a good time. So much fun. I tell you what, I could have done with this chainsaw, though, because my chainsaw didn't make any noises. And the prop that no. they use in this episode looks brilliant. And I look carefully and the blade is going round on this chainsaw that they use in this episode. So I could have done with a BBC prop and that would have been perfect for me. So yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I have to say it does get quite grotesque this bit because when he runs down the steps towards, you know, to the reception, yeah. that Matt, he's on the floor. I didn't realize until this on this watch, but there's blood pouring out of his head, like a, you know, like poor cool blood that's going out of his head and, and on the floor. Again, 8.30, I mean, the, the most gruesome we've had so far was the bird in the second yeah. series. And he's like, and Corn's just covered in blood. But this is like blood outside a man's head after being shot. I mean, it, again, you wouldn't yeah. get away with this now before the war shed. Not yeah, and obviously, shortly before he runs down the stairs, he gets the the handle of the actual chainsaw stuck, stuck on the actual door handle, and he pulls it, and it sets yeah. the chainsaw going. <laughs> So he's now running around with a chainsaw super glued to his hands as he comes into reception area. <laughs> yeah, and I love how uh, when he goes to the um, the telephone and he asks for police, um, he's saying, you can't hear me, I've got a chainsaw running. I repeat, a chainsaw and the chainsaw blade, because of the way he's, um, so he can't control the, 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 the gear it too well, he then um, starts to cut through, what is it, the, um, uh, what's it called, the announcement? Oh, I wasn't sure what it was. It's like a, it's a machine for the phones, isn't it? Yes. But I've, I've never seen that machine before in any other episodes. Yeah. I, I it's, um, it's, I, I think, um, it's, it's something that causes the phone line to break and what's really clever about it. And I love this in, in comedy, especially when something happens, which is so bizarre and then characters have to react in a certain way. So with this, when, Carol sees Gordon with the chainsaw. He's, he's and obviously he's really freaked out and he's loud. And 
it's with the, the noise of the chainsaw's loud. So she's like, Carol, you gotta help me. You gotta switch this thing off. And she's running away. It's Carol, Carol, help me for God's sake before I hurt someone. You know, it sounds like um, he sounds like he's gone mad. Yeah. <laughs> like he's he's gonna hurt he is gonna hurt someone, but actually no, he is genuinely concerned. It's clever as well because obviously the reason why Carol isn't at the reception desk to call the police is because earlier Gordon told her to go and have some warm milk. So that's why she's not there. So that was a perfectly throwaway comment, but then it's turned out to be an important plot device because now because he sent Carol away, he's called the police and cut into the phone machine and all the lines are dead. So even something as yeah, when you're analysing it like this, when you're doing notes for the podcast, you just you just you do see these attention to details, like we've said before, and even something as small as that, you know, the little little nugget of go and make a drink, Carol. That is an important plot element here. Oh yeah, I I noticed that more and more in, in loads of ninety sitcoms, and I think one of the big dif- distinctions between studio based sitcoms from the nineties and and sort of post two thousands, amount of throwaway co- dialogue. That yeah. just either there for the laugh, for heat, for a laugh, and and not really advances the plot, or just there as a gag. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much attention to detail in these sitcoms. The writers of those of these shows were just on another level. Brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, there's so much detail from Fagan and Norris's writing in this. Richard Fagan and Andrew Norris's writing. It is absolutely fantastic. And the, and this is. is I think it's the same with a lot of their writing in Britus, where you've got all these different strands of plots and stuff all tying together and slotting together quite neatly. And I think this episode is a perfect example of that, really. Britus then goes, it's again another great scene, some more great visual humour. So he's running down the hallway because he needs to go meet Colin and Laura because there's dead bodies apparently outside the squash courts. He needs to go and see what's going on. And he's running through the squash, he's running through the leisure centre. And then he goes through <laughs> an OAP class, doesn't he? With the yeah. chainsaw super glued to his hands, trips over and then slides across, cutting all the Zimmer frames and all the old people one by one are falling like dominoes onto the floor whilst he's sliding across with the chainsaw stuck to his hand. <laughs> yeah, because that, that, that is the... Um... The, the the injurers injured um, elderly people that was mentioned in the beginning of the episode. So again, yes. starting to see the, the the events of the charges that were listed at the beginning of the episode, which makes it even more satisfying because you realise everything that's happened, what's really gone on, and it's just as crazy and just as cat- catastrophic as you imagined. But what I realised just before that scene um, between. Uh, Gordon with the chainsaw in the uh, reception and then to the corridor. You go back to the courtroom and then the prosecutor's talking to Carol. And I love this scene because, you know, we've seen Carol in, in the previous episodes when she seems fine. So like when Ben, her, her ex-husband comes back and she seems really calm. And, you know, she has those kind of moments where she has a bit of a poshness comes out. I know what then, you mean, yeah. And then here... You know, Hoskins like, like, help me for, for God's sakes before I hurt someone. Those were his words. And she's very calm and collected because Gordon's on the stand and she's like, yes. Um, and then uh, he's like, did, and the prosecutor says, did you phone the police? And she says, I tried to. Mr. Britters had cut the machine in half. All the lines were dead. And then he says, well, what did Mr. Britters do then? And then she's like, he just ran off down the corridor. Yeah. yeah. Very funny. I put that down. It's quite sinister the way she says it. Because at one minute she's crying in the witness box saying, oh, the lines were dead. And then the next minute she's saying it quite sinister. So she switches from one to the other, doesn't she, quite well, Harriet yeah. thought. 
and it just and, and then we see like Britis's head go down because yeah. he, he finally thinks this is it i am not getting out of here i've cut the lines i've got the drugs in my office i've got the murder weapon with my fingerprints all over it the bullets in that gun have been used to kill people i'm going down for this and the fact that he cuts the phone lines and is shouting to carol for god's sake i'm going to hurt someone he has no inkling at all that he's going to get out of this successfully does he <laughs> no I, I no he really doesn't um and and it's again going back to the goriness of this episode so when you've we've had the um all the zimmer frames that have been sliced up and the elderly people have been injured you go into the corridor where there's all these dead bodies and there's one where there's a bald guy who's hanging over a bench i think it's a it's a bit of a bench or is it um yeah over a bench and you can see literally a bullet you know a hole in his head and blood that's not pouring out but like staying across again really gory stuff yeah i mean when they rise that squash court where laura and colin is there's bodies everywhere and it yeah. is really gruesome i mean you know it's an 8:30 sitcom this it's a family sitcom and it's covered in blood gore chainsaws you know this isn't your average 8:30 sitcom which some people might say it is who've misunderstood the show or maybe watched the wrong episode or something but this is basically it just proves how i guess multi-layered and how different and unique this show is because what other sitcom has a chainsaw wielding manager and loads of dead bodies to be honest <laughs> yeah no exactly it's completely unique and british is one of them where it's mainstream but also surreal and could be you could put it on at half 10 on bbc2 and half it on bbc1 and it still wouldn't look out of place no i agree i read i completely agree it it it, it just doesn't patronize the audience and it also it's a good gateway for kids to watch something that's a little bit scary it's safe it's safe fear, yeah i think yeah yeah definitely yeah because when you think about all that disney films and stuff some of them really are terrifying aren't they yeah, really some are, them, yeah. look into the messages behind some of them as well it is much more sinister so yeah a lot of uh, children's i think I, I wrote a children's story called spark the cat about and it had plenty of death in it and stuff and then my teacher was like at a level that's going to be a bit bit too much for kids and i'm thinking well if you look at all red riding hood and jack and jill and from nursery rhymes to fairy tales how dark are they and the, the death that happens in them i don't think it really is dark to have death and delivered sleeping beauty yeah I mean, this fairy tale sleeping beauty is really grim beauty and the beast used to scare me the cartoon version yeah when she goes yeah. to the haunted house and there's a beast yeah. and talking candles and stuff i mean that's gonna freak anybody out 100 <laughs> percent, definitely so yeah so i think yeah i mean at half eight a bit of gore and stuff for kids if it's not too violent i think it's it's all right it's it's no worse than a lot of what children can say. i mean if you look at children's tv shows as well they're unintentionally terrifying aren't they oh they can be yeah definitely like goosebumps and stuff you know you've got to yeah. uh, again sometimes it's good to just have a, a bit of fear growing up as a kid because it prepares you for being an adult in the real have, world have you ever seen the very first mini and mickey mouse uh from the 1920s is it I think so. The very first kind of outfit, costume, and Mickey, the original incarnation of how they looked. Absolutely terrifying, listeners. If you've not, go and Google the very first, type in very first Mickey and Minnie Mouse after you listen to the podcast because it is terrifying. Have, they have, look, you, have, you, heard the, have you heard what they've done about Mickey Mouse recently? I've not, no, actually, no. So Mickey, Mickey Mouse has officially gone into the public domain because steamboat willie was um created a hundred years ago and so after a hundred years they be, it goes into the public domain but they've made a, a horror movie which is i think it's called mickey mickey i don't know it's, a, it's just a horror movie about mickey and minnie mouse all oh, right that sounds pretty cool is that coming out or is it out now it's coming out soon i think 
That sounds good. I know there's a, there's a Winnie the Pooh, there's a horror film about Winnie the Pooh that kills people. I've not seen <laughs> yeah. it. Have you seen it's it, John? Funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen That's that? Because of the I haven't, no, I'd like no. to, but yeah, it is like um, a, because uh, of the public domain thing, that's the same thing. Yeah, you, you can't be a fun, cheesy slasher. I think the last cheesy slasher I watched was Thanksgiving, which came out in November 23. That's pretty good. Mm. Um, have you seen that yet, John? It's worth watching. Not yet, but I will do. I just didn't yeah. get a chance to. Yeah, it's got Patrick Dempsey in, which apparently has been voted the sexiest man alive. So uh, there we go. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, back to Britus then. I love, it's another great scene, this, with the bodies and the chainsaw wheeling. They realise there's a, there's, Colin says there's somebody on the other side of the squash court door and they can't get in because the body's jamming it. So Britus decides, get a sledgehammer, get a saw. And obviously he's got a saw super glued to him. So he's like, stand back. And he's carving through the door to try and get to this guy to rescue him. And as he's doing it, the audience see on the other side and you can see that he's going to behead the guy. <laughs> and it's just... Oh, I, do you know what? I had a How bit gruesome. of a... How gruesome is that for an 8.30 sitcom? It is very gruesome. But I had a bit of a um, Mandela effect with this one. Do you, do you know what the Mandela effect is? No, what's that? So it's the theory of basically um, this idea that we all misremember things mm. about events as, or, or circumstances that you think happen in a certain way or you think may have happened but didn't at all. And it goes, I think it goes back to there was some, something was said years ago that Nelson Mandela had died at a certain time when actually he didn't die until like 50 years later or something. But people genuinely thought he died many years earlier than he did. So it was called Mandela effect. And I have a memory of this scene, of that scene where obviously you've got Gordon on one side of the door and the man on the other side with this leaned up against the door. And the very last bit of the shot of Gordon putting the chainsaw through the door. So, you know, it's got in, in level of his, with the guy's head. So, you know, it's going to be, it's going to decapitate him. I've had a memory that you see that last chainsaw go through the door on the other side through the guy. So you can actually see the chainsaw slightly start to go towards his edge towards his throat. Yeah. I, it's not the case. It just goes to show how we all remember things differently. And I really thought that was the case. Yeah. An actual beheading for 8.30 on BBC One, maybe. I think it is interesting though, but I think that's kind of place with strengths really because sometimes what you don't see is then left to your imagination and you think you've actually seen more than you have i mean again going back to the texas chainsaw massacre the original texas chainsaw massacre which has been banned and been voted the most bloodiest violent goriest film in the world has not got one speck of blood in it hardly in fact the director wanted it to be a pg when it came out you know mm. It was just, yeah. it's completely bloodless, but yeah, people wrote it off as this video nasty. And that's, and I think that's what it is. I think if you, if you don't show something and leave it to the imagination, that can be a lot more terrifying. You can think that you've seen a lot more when in reality, you've not seen somebody's head get locked off. Yeah, exactly. No, theatre imagination is so much more um, yeah. believable and, and effective. Yeah, definitely. I I think I think I'm a, I'm of two camps me with horror films. I love over the top gore, but then it can be great when it's minimal as well. I think it just I think it just depends really. I think sometimes you can't be over the top splatterfest like Evil Dead Two. Sometimes that's just fun and crazy, and and it, I, I'm always up for loads and loads of gore and blood. But uh, you know, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two and One that that's chalk and cheese in terms of the tone yeah, and style yeah. and stuff. You got one that's a comedy, one that's gritty and minimal. But you know, it's I think you can enjoy both, can't you? 
Yeah, it, it's all about. I think it just depends on what it's about and the, and the story. So I think the story's strong, then you can get away with the goal. From this noisy chainsaw scene, we go to a very kind of a contrasting silent scene to Brittus in his cell and Helen comes in in a fur coat, rather cheery, with some sausage rolls. I think at this point, Helen Brittus thinks Gordon's going down for a long time. And I think that's why she's still quite happy. She thinks yeah. she's going to be off with... She's got back with Mr. Simon, um, Uncle Simon, rather. She's got the fur coat. She's got a Mercedes. Brittus is going down. Everything's looking rosy for Helen. So I think there's an element of that to her cheerfulness. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think yeah, any chance she gets to get rid of Gordon is, is a plus for her, I think. But I do really feel sorry for Brittus in this scene because, I mean, she says, what have they got apart from circumstantial evidence? They haven't got a motive, have they? I mean, why would you want to kill all those people? And then he says, I think they think the money. And then he says, you know what hurts the most, Helen? That prosecutor saying a man like me should never have been given a position of trust in the community. To see everything you've devoted your life to just get thrown back in your face. And I just feel a bit sorry for him because you know that Brutus is a good guy and he's not he's not a nasty person, is he, Gordon Brutus? He, he wants to do well and he's not interested about money. He wants to help people. And you just really kind of feel for him in this scene, I think. Yeah, I don't agree. You know, it's another example of his uh, playing to his vulnerability a lot more because I yeah. think even in the kind of wackiness of the, of the farce, it, there's a pathos to it as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, before we move on to the very last scene, one thing I forgot to say earlier about this episode is how different would it be? You couldn't really get away with this plot in 2023 in the sense that a leisure centre would have loads of CCTV cameras. So you'd yeah. see who's but the, you'd see who's taken the briefcase, you'd see who's dropped the gun and, you know, what's gone on. But I think, obviously, in 1993, you haven't got yeah. all the CCTV, so you can get away with it. It's like that episode we looked at in Series 1, where Britis gets Colin to hide in the locker to see who steals his his <laughs> uh, his wallet. There's certain plots yeah. that just work then that, that wouldn't yeah. work now. It's like Home Alone would be a very quick film if it was done today i saw a meme the other day he's like mum i'm home alone okay coming back yeah and, nice, i saw yeah. that one as well. yeah <laughs> so yeah this is definitely a plot that that w perhaps wouldn't it'll be interesting how if they had to remake this plot how they do it because they'd have to do it obviously very very differently maybe yeah. they, maybe maybe they'd have to cut the the electricity or the cctv circuits at the start of the episode so yeah. they're all down or something that day and then they could have it maybe but i guess yeah. that's the thing you have to think about with changing times and technology, which technology is something that is taking over, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh it, it certainly is. I also love when um, Gordon says, you know, get it turned back in your face. And then Helen says, oh, come on, Gordon, never say die. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she says, I mean, perhaps the judge will make it look better when he sums it up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I love, I love the sum up though in the next scene, because it is just, <laughs> he says, so members of the jury, you may decide to believe the defendant when he stumbled across the drugs and the money as a result of a lavatory inspection. And when he de decapitated Mr. Ramirez, he was merely trying to get through a door to administer first aid. If, however, you find it easier to believe as the prosecution does. And then we hear, stop, stop. I was there. I saw what happened. And then Billy from EastEnders, Eddie, he, he runs in, doesn't he, and pretty much saves the day. <laughs> I love this. I It's another example where one of Gordon's lectures of his philosophy of life, his dream, actually does resonate with someone. It's a bit like um, bit the yeah. episode with the inspector. And, you, and, and or in the first series, you know, the girl, uh, the interviewee, the 17-year-old. Yeah. Um, he says, he's amazing, isn't he? He says, 
he has a dream. Sometimes it just resonates with certain kinds of people. Um, and I yeah. like the fact that Eddie does, you know, he's doing what he should have done earlier. Um, you know, I, I was scared of going to prison for 20 years or being murdered by my gang friends. Can't hide him. I can't stand by and watching this man suffer. Not after what he's given me. And I and, and the way Mr. Britis is look is just standing <laughs> at this at this time looking excited, like a proud parent almost. You know, what has he given you? The judges asked, and, and then he says, A sense of worth as a human being, my lord, dignity, the knowledge that I don't have to spend the life in the gutter, but I can use my talents to help others. I've spent the last six months in a leisure centre in Wincanton. And teaching small children to swim, coaching adolescents in badminton, helping others find the path of self-perform that this man gave me. And again, Gordon's just like a, a jittery child with his big smile yeah. and wide eyes. It's just really, really funny. Yeah, th this is the sweet spot for Gordon Brittis because you know, he wants to help people and spread his message of dream and hope and stuff and yeah. bring the world together through sport. And he's achieved it with this guy, Eddie. And Julie's looking down from the witness box above thinking, oh, God. And then obviously at this point, Brittis is a hero. You know, he, he, he's off, you know, and he's, he's outside with all the press around him. And he goes, it's a super verdict. And then we get the big twist at the end of the episode, don't we, John? Because it turns out the maniac with the tube of superglue turns out to be no other than the judge himself who hands it to <laughs> Terry, Terence, the uh, prosecutor. Yeah, I love this. I love the um It's just that, you know, he's, he's like saying, you know, it's just that there are some cases you really hate to lose. Do you know that man barred by children from the leisure centre because he found one of them chewing gum? I thought he'd least to get 30 years. It's more than one way to skin a cat, David. Um <laughs> It's just really funny the fact that he's like, my entire family were barred because I forgot to use the foot bath. And then he, um, the judge brings out extra stick glue. And he's like, a present for you and a suggestion. No one's done the lavatory seat in the executive washroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. And then obviously the final scene is Britta's trying to get into his car and his hand gets stuck to the handle. <laughs> yeah, and he's having to like run as it drives off, which is again, another really great bit of physical comedy by, by Chris Barry there. But yeah, it is an absolutely fantastic episode, this. It's just got everything you want for a British Empire episode. And it's one that is the perfect episode to show somebody, I think, who's never seen the show before, because it just, it gets all the craziness of the show, the zaniness, the drama, the surreal elements, yeah. the, the humour, just the madness of Whitbury Leisure Centre. It's a, it's a perfect stellar British Empire episode, in my opinion. And it's just I so, agree. it's so clever and well written. Yeah, everything's so woven together and linked together and the attention to detail in the writing, it's just spot on. It is. It's definitely one of my favourites. It just has uh, a real, and, and a real um, edge to it, which and I so think I love most. And when we talk about the British Empire being dark and subversive, it's because of episodes like this, because you've got 830 sitcom and you've got dead bodies everywhere, chainsaws, you know, it's not just a sitcom about a manager with a silly voice, you know, it's a lot more than that. And I think this episode proves that quite a lot. And it, it's not just that, but you, you've got the, the scenes with Helen, where there's a lot of drama and elements where you really sympathise and empathise with Britters. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this episode, which just shows that it isn't just a silly sitcom. It, it's a lot more than that. I completely agree. Yeah, fantastic. 10 out of 10 marks for me, this one. And you know what's back, John, don't you? The British quiz. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yes. Yes, it is time for the British quiz. So as always, we've got five questions, listeners, and 
you can play along however way you want. We're going to I'll ask these out and then just write down your answer. Simple as that. So five questions, the British quiz on this episode. Here we go. Question number one. Let's see if I can keep up my reputation for being an evil quiz master with terrible, terribly evil questions. <laughs> what is British's middle name? So at the start of this episode, the judge reads out his full name when he's on trial. So question one, what is British's middle name? Question number two is how much money is in the first briefcase that's found? Okay, so how much money is in the first briefcase that's found by Gavin? He says the amount in the episode. Question number three of five is who gave Helen the fur coat? So who gave Helen the fur coat? And there's two more. Question number four is what book is Carol reading? So what is the name of the book Carol is reading in reception? To help her with her visions. And if you get the, the author as well, you get two points. So you might get six points today. <laughs> and the last but not least, what's the last thing Brutus gets his hand stuck to? Okay, with the super glue, the last thing in the episode he gets his hand stuck to. And that's it. There are your five questions. That's your first Brutus quiz of the new series, of series three of the British Empire. Any good, John? I think I've got, well, I think I've got at least four of them, but on one of them, I think I've got the um, bonus point for the author oh, of the book. That's impressive. So you, you won it back then. Fair enough. So what is Brittus's middle name? It's Wesley. Wesley. Gordon Wellesley Brittus. Yeah, that's it. And then you've got question two. How much money is in the first briefcase? £650,000. Yep, it is. £650,000 in £10 notes. And then, <laughs> which must be an incredible amount of money if you adjust it to inflation. I was meant to do that. So I'll, I'll try and remember that for next week, listeners, when we do next week's episode. And who gave Helen the fur coat? Uncle Simon. It's, in the, it's the elusive Uncle Simon. Absolutely. And then what book is Carol reading? So I is it How Insane Are You? Just How Sane Are You? How Sane Are You, right. Okay. Yeah. And do you know the author? Dr. M.I. Stevens. It might be M.I. I got M.J. Stevens, but maybe, maybe yeah, it's M.J. Stevens. Is it M.J.? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was dying to myself then, yeah. But M.I. or M.J., you, you can have a point if you've got Stevens, M. Stevens, so that's good. <laughs> Thank you very much. And then, last question. What's the last thing Britus gets his hands stuck to? Card or handle. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, what's your totals there, John? Uh, well, six, if you include the bonus point five out of six wow but yeah i tell you what john has john has come with you know he's going to make it competitive for your listeners if you can beat john's score he's not gonna let you win the time he's gonna he's getting six out of five so yeah let's see how well you can do drop us an email british empire pod at gmail.com but yeah thank you thank you for listening it's great to be back talking about this amazing show celebrating the british empire analyzing it what are we talking about next week john so next week's episode is called That Creeping Feeling. And after offending many of the staff members, um, Brutus brings in a psychiatrist to check staff anxiety levels, only to learn that he is the cause of the staff's stress. But at the same time, there's a deadly tropical spider that bites Colin. Thank you for listening. As always, you can follow all British Empire fan content uh, via our, our Twitter and Instagram, our friend Louise, who runs the at Fan page. There's also the 
website, the Facebook page, the British Empire Appreciation Society, and British Empire is still on that TV. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they were repeating it in December, along with Little Britain and and Legal Gentlemen as well. So yeah, I think they are still repeating it. So yeah, check out that's TV for some retro sitcoms. That was fun. It's good fun. I enjoyed that. Good to be back. <laughs>